The last two weeks, we've been working our way through the beginning of Jesus' teaching on prayer in Matthew 6. Jesus, the last two weeks, we've looked at how we ought not to pray. So Jesus says we should not pray like the hypocrites who pray not to get God's attention, but who pray so that other people would look at them. We're not to pray like the pagan Gentiles who think that they can control God or work their way to God with their many words. He's talking about how we should pray in Matthew 6, 5 through 8. And here in verse 9, Jesus lays out not a negative, don't do like this. He lays out a positive vision for prayer. He says, how ought we to pray? What ought we to pray? If last two weeks we looked at the how, this week we're looking at the what. What should Christians pray? What Jesus is doing here is he's providing a model for us to learn from. In the Lord's Prayer, we're not supposed to just merely pray the same words that Jesus said. We know this because we see other prayers of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't just repeat this prayer over and over again. Rather, what he's doing is he's showing us how we can pray. He's giving us a model that we can follow. The Lord's Prayer, which is what Christians for centuries have called this passage, the Lord's Prayer is not a mantra or the power is not in the words themselves, as if just by saying the Lord's Prayer, it has power. Rather, it's a framework to help us know what should we say in prayer? How can we approach God? Prayer can be intimidating for many of us. Some of you kids may feel that way. Your parents ask you to pray and you're not sure what to say. You don't know what to do. That happens for adults too. Sometimes we come to prayer and it's just this empty space and we think, I know I should be praying, but how do I fill this space? What should I say during this time? This is where the Lord's Prayer is helpful. It gives us handles to hold on to. It gives us categories. It helps to shape our priorities, the sort of things that we should ask for. It's our map for prayer. And in verse 9, Jesus begins the prayer by setting the highest priority, the thing that shapes the entire rest of the prayer. And here's the thing that we're going to see this morning. This is our main point. Our priority in our prayers is our Father's glory. For Christians, our priority in our prayers is the glory of our Father. And we're going to see this in two sections. The first is praying to our Father in heaven and then praying for our Father's glory. So we're just going to look at those one at a time as we work our way through Matthew 6. And we're just going to be in verse 9 today. We're going to spend the next number of weeks looking at each request, breaking it down. Today we're just looking at verse 9. Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer by telling us how we ought to address God. And what words does he tell us to say? He says, Our Father in heaven. Now, titles are very important. Right? Father is not God's name in the sense of what his name is. Father is his title. Titles are very important in many cultures, especially in this culture. Right? So when we pray for our rulers, we don't pray for them just by their names. We don't pray for Muhammad bin Zayed, al-Nahyan. We pray for his highness, Sheikh Muhammad bin Zayed al-Nahyan. We are showing him the respect that he deserves. We teach our kids to say auntie 
or to say uncle when they're speaking to an adult, or to say Mr. or Mrs. because we want to be able to show the respect that this person deserves. If you have a PhD or if you have a medical degree, right, you are doctor and usually we'll use that term, especially if we don't know someone we'll introduce and this is Dr. Chris, this is Dr. Brenda. I could go through our whole church and say doctor, 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 but titles are very important. There's many of you who will not call me Luke. You can, but it's always pastor. It's pastor Luke because that's in your culture is how you show the respect. Titles matter because they show an awareness of who the person is that we're talking to and how we relate to that person as well. You may call me pastor, but my parents don't. Before, they know I'm a pastor, but before I'm a pastor, I'm their son, right? They, my wife doesn't call me pastor. She calls me Luke. My kids don't call me pastor. They call me dad. And in some cases, the title that we use actually tells us more than the person's name themselves. So with my mom, I will never get to the point where I call my mom by her first name. Now, I know what my mom's name is. It's not a secret. Her name is Rachel, right? So, but I will never say, hey, Rachel, great to talk to you today. Why? Because Rachel is actually less important to me. It tells me less about my mom than the name mom. Mom communicates more about my relationship with Rachel Humphrey than simply saying, Rachel does. As close as I will get to my mom, as deeply as I will know my mom, I will always call her mom because that is how our relationship is defined. Which is why it's so significant that Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father who is in heaven. The way that we approach God defines the way in which we relate to God. These four words tell us so much about how our relationship with God is lived out. And we're gonna look at them backwards. So we're gonna start with in heaven, then we're gonna look at Father, and then we're gonna look at the word our. Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven. Now, kids, is God only in heaven? I'm getting some shakes. No, God's everywhere, right? He's in this room right now. God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. He is everywhere in all places. So why does Jesus teach us to pray to our Father in heaven? Why not our Father on this earth? Why not our Father in this room? Well, the overall teaching of Scripture is that God's presence is in a unique way in heaven. God is everywhere, but he is especially present in heaven as the king and as the ruler. Heaven is where God's throne is. Listen to Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Right? God's on earth, right? When you put your feet on a stool, you're on that stool, but you're not on that stool in the same way that you are sitting on your throne. God rules from heaven. It's his throne. In earlier, just last chapter, in Matthew 5, Jesus, when talking about oath-taking, affirms this. He says, don't take an oath at all. 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Our Bible study on Tuesday night, we were looking at this passage, and one of our members brought up Solomon's prayers when the temple is dedicated. This is the holiest place on earth, but God doesn't live there in the same way that he is in heaven. You pray in the temple, and the prayers go up to God in heaven. He hears from heaven because he rules from heaven. In the book of Revelation, we see the martyred saints coming before the throne of God in heaven, and they make their requests to God. When we pray to our Father in heaven, what are we doing? We are acknowledging that God is our king, that he is our ruler, that he rules over all. It's not that he is only in heaven, and we send him mail so that he gets it, right? It's an acknowledgement that he rules from heaven. He has power over us as a sovereign rules over his domain. Our prayers are petitions of an inferior to a superior. They're petitions of citizens to a king. We are requesting that God in his rule, we, our call to worship was... God does whatever he pleases. Our request is that God would rule in such a way as he sees fit over all. But he's more than our king. Jesus doesn't teach us to pray to our king in heaven. He's our father. He prays to our father in heaven. And we pray to our father in heaven. And this makes all the difference in the world. God is a king. He is a ruler, but he's not merely a king. He's your father. And if your father is the king, then the chief way that you relate to him is not as a king. The chief way that you relate to him is as a father. You can do things with a father that you can't do to a king. You can have a level of closeness and intimacy with a father that you don't have with a king. There is respect but there's also love and trust and closeness. I love how John Calvin, one of the Protestant reformers, put it. He says, by the great sweetness of this name, Father, Jesus frees us from all distrust. We all know bad kings, right? We all know kings that we can't get to. But hopefully when we think of Father, we can think of, while we have imperfect fathers on earth, we can think of love and trust and comfort and provision because that's who God is. I just said earlier that the chief way that the father relates to believers is as a father to his children. Now, there is a sense where God is the father of all people in that all people are created in his image after his likeness. He created us, and we are his offspring in that way. Paul uses that language in Acts 17 when he's sharing the gospel with Greeks, and he says, one of your own poets has said, we are his offspring because we're created in God's image. So there is a sense in which all people are children of God as offspring, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not talking about being a child of God by nature of creation. He's talking about being a child of God in a spiritual sense, by becoming a new creation, 
by being born again. He is our Father because we've been born of God. And as we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, we've seen over and over again, how do you become born of God? By trusting in Jesus. John 1, to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is our Father, if you are a Christian, because you have come to the Son, and He has adopted you into His family. You are not merely created in God's image. You are spiritually adopted. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Paul says in Romans 8. Our ability to call on God as our Father is a work of grace. It's a work of grace. And if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus, then you don't know what it's like to call on God as a Father in this way. He's not just your king. He's not just your creator. He is your father who loves you if you would come to his son. And the way that you experience the joy and the privilege of being able to call your king your father is by coming to Jesus in faith. By nature, you are born not a child of God. By nature, you are born, Paul says, a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. But the Son of God, Jesus, came to this earth and he took God's wrath. He bore the wrath so that you could bear his place at the table, so that you could sit at the family meal of God and call on God as a father. You could have the privilege and rights and inheritance of a son because you've been adopted into God's family. That is for you, if you would but trust in Jesus. But there's another layer to how Jesus teaches us to relate to God in prayers. We don't just call God Father in heaven. We don't call God my Father in heaven. We call him our Father. What that means is it reminds us that our prayers are not merely an individual prayer. There is a corporate community reminder to our prayers. We pray as a people to God. Now, we certainly pray to God as individuals. We saw the last two weeks, Jesus says, go into your room and pray in secret, right? You can't pray in a corporate way by yourself in secret. We can pray to God as individuals, but we never pray to God merely as individuals. If you've been brought into God's family, then you're a member of the family with all these other believers, Your identity is connected to your fellow members of your family. He's not merely your God and your father. He is our God and our father. And this reminder should shape the way that we pray to God. I mean, think about it. When you pray, do you remember your fellow believers in your prayer? Do you ever pray for your fellow Christians because they're your fellow Christians? Or are you only praying for your own needs or for the needs of those who are biologically connected to you, like your earthly family? If someone were to look at your prayer life, would they be able to tell what church you belong to? 
because they can say, oh, he's praying for these people or she's praying for these people. One of the reasons why we put together a membership directory for our members is to help our members pray for one another. The elders go through every single month and we pray for our members, right? We would want you to be able to pray for your members. You can reach out, but you could just keep that, tuck it in your Bible, open it up. And as you pray to God, pray for your fellow family members because you are connected to them in the church and in the household of God. Do you pray for persecuted Christians around the world? One of the reasons why we put together the prayer guide that we have is because we're not just members of the family with the people who are in this room, but we have brothers and sisters who are experiencing suffering around the world, and we care about them because he's their father as well as our father. Together, he is our father. By teaching us to pray our father, we remember and identify with our fellow believers. And Jesus starts here because this is what defines our relationship with God. He doesn't just jump into prayer. He starts with a title to shape how we ought to think about God as we approach him. If you were from a, another planet and you walked into an office space here in the city, and you walk in and you see all these people who are working or a school and you see these teachers walking around, you know nothing about this world. You may look and you may say, oh, I wonder, I wonder what brings all these people here together, right? Maybe it's the Wi-Fi. It's just really reliable Wi-Fi. You just have to connect sometimes because you're out of minutes on your phone and you got to get connected. Maybe it's the coffee. It's good coffee. Maybe it's because it's hot outside and so these people come inside to get at some air conditioning, right? Maybe it's just a productive place to work. But if you then were to see the name badge and you see the title of the company that's there and it says employee of that company, that tells you, oh, this is why this person's here. This is how all of these people relate to each other, is they belong to the same company. As Christians, we call on God as Father, and it shows we relate to each other as family members. That's what brings us to God in prayer in the first place. It's because we call on God as our Father who is in heaven. Which leads to our second section, praying for our Father's glory. Christians pray to our Father in heaven, and we pray for his glory. Listen to verse 9 again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is not a common term, right? It really isn't. Actually, I was helped talking to some fellow believers who speak a different language and hallowed is actually just a very old English term. Their native tongue actually told them more probably than the English does because we don't walk around talking about hallowed. It translated it for them, and I think that's helpful. To, to hallow something means to consecrate, to sanctify, to make it holy, to set it apart. Jesus' prayer is made up of six requests. And it is this first request, hallowed be your name, that shapes all the other requests. All the other requests fall under and support this. In many ways, the Lord's Prayer is one request with many different manifestations. We start by asking that God would make his name holy. What does it mean to be made holy? To be holy is to be set apart, it's to be perfect. When we pray that God would make his name holy, we can't be praying that God would take something he doesn't have 
and would add to it. God is already perfect. We can't add to God's holiness in that way. No, it's not like taking a cup and filling it with holiness so that the half full cup becomes completely full or the empty cup becomes completely full. Rather, when we pray that God would hallow his name, we take the overflowing cup and we drink from it and we enjoy it and we give it to others and they drink and they enjoy. To hallow means to see God for who he truly is and desire that others would see God for who he truly is. That others and ourselves would experience the glory and holiness of God in a fresh way for ourselves. Our first request in our prayers is for God to be glorified. How does this happen? How do we know whether God answers our request that he would hallow his name? I love how Thomas Watson writing in 1692, it's really helpful to go to some of the old guys who've been dead a long time and just be able to see the way that they read the same Bible that we have and they see things that we need to see ourselves. He says, we can add nothing to God's essential glory, but we are said to honor and sanctify his name when we lift him up in the world and make him appear greater in the eyes of others. To hallow God's name means that we see him as greater than what we would have seen otherwise because sin darkens our sight. It blinds us from seeing glory. We lift him up so that others would look and when they see God, they would see him for who he truly is. He goes on, we hallow and sanctify God's name when we trust in it. Unbelief stains God's honor and eclipses his name. So faith glorifies and hallows his name. The believer trusts his best jewels in God's hands. So if you had your most precious thing on this earth and you wouldn't give it to somebody, it's because you don't trust them. But when you give them the best thing that you possibly have, it glorifies them because it shows, I trust you. Your character is worthy. Your perfection is sufficient. You are responsible. You are loving. You are concerned about me. I trust my best things with you. When we bring our needs, when we bring our sin, when we bring our weakness to God, we glorify him, we hallow his name by trusting him with our whole lives, by depending upon him. The thing that God cares most about in our prayers is our faith. And it's our faith that leads us to seek his glory. That's our priority. That's why we exist. You exist to glorify God. And the Bible makes it crystal clear. God's greatest concern is his own glory. God seeks his glory above all else. Now, this is hard for many of us. We hear that and we think, wait, God's greatest concern is his own glory? What about me? Does that make you cringe a little bit? If so, what you're cringing at is the teaching of scriptures. All throughout the scriptures, it teaches that God does good to his people for his own glory. Isaiah 43, bring my sons from afar my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my own glory. Why do you exist? Why did God create you for his own glory? 
Why does God save you? For his own glory, Ephesians 1. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God saved you for his own glory. Why does God forgive you? I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. He forgives you so that he is glorified in forgiving you. Why does God answer our prayers in the first place? For his own glory. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Every good experience, every gift that you have ever had on this earth, it serves the Father's glory. It serves to glorify and make much of him and lift him up. He is giving in order to be glorified as the giver. You receive in order, by, in order to be satisfied in him as the one who satisfies. God's highest priority is his name being hallowed. And that's why it should be our highest priority as well. But we should stop. And it's, it's not wrong to take a step back. And like a child, kids ask some of the really hard questions. We ask, why? Why should we want God to be glorified? To put it kind of crassly, what's in it for us? <laughs> like, why should I want this to take place? Is this just mere duty? Is God just this dictator who says, do it, glorify me? It is duty. Our king commands it. But it's not mere duty. You should seek God's glory because that's when you will be happiest. Seeking God's glory is the pathway to experience our highest good. It's not just duty. It's also delight. It is pleasurable. It's far greater than any mere pleasure that this world can offer. Think about it. You are obligated to eat to survive. Right? You are, have a duty, if you're going to survive, to consume food. But consuming food is a pleasurable experience. It is an enjoyable experience, even when the food doesn't taste very good. It feels better to have a full stomach than to have an empty stomach, right? When we consume bad food, it brings us a form of pleasure. And for most of us, we don't consume bad food. We consume really good food. And that brings us all sorts of additional pleasures. Our taste buds ignite with flavor. We smell things. I mean, I regularly walk from our church office down there, and I don't know who lives in these back sections, but the smells that come are just amazing. I walk by and my stomach starts to grumble because this flavor is being smelled. Can't smell flavor, but these smells are being smelled, and there's joy and pleasure there. We see things, food, and it brings us pleasure. Why do restaurants focus on presentation? You eat with your eyes first. Why do people take their pictures of food and post it to the online world? Because it looks good. It's enjoyable to look at food. There's so many cooking shows on Netflix. So many cooking shows on Netflix. Why? We like looking at food. It brings us pleasure to be able to do it. 
And what happens when you taste something really good and you're with someone else? What do you do? Mmm. Mmm. You got to try this. This is so good. What you're doing in that moment is you are praising that food. And the reason you're doing it is because it feels good to do it. It brings you happiness as you are praising the food. The praise and the pleasure go hand in hand. The duty is delightful. The joy is the glorifying. That's the way it is with God. When we glorify God, we find our souls to be at their happiest, at their most satisfied, at their fullest. God doesn't say, glorify me, and you get nothing from it. God is our Father. He seeks our good. And the command to pray for his glory is the command for us to be as happy as humanly possible. Just look at the Psalms. The, the book of Psalms is often called the prayer book of the Bible. 150 rich prayers to God. And how do the psalmists describe their experience of praising God? One thing I asked that I will seek after. I have one request, God. What do I want? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I have one request. What is it? I want to see God. I want to see him glorious and lifted up for who he is. Psalm 5, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection around them that those who love your name may exult in you. Do you know what it means to exult? Not exalt, exult. It means to rejoice in. And we connect that with praise because when we exult in God, we are praising. The praise and the rejoicing are the same thing. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What are you thirsting after? What is your soul fainting for? It's the glory of God. It's so that you could see God for who he is. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. We seek God's glory first in our prayers because that is where our true happiness is found. That is where we will be most satisfied, where we will be most happy and delighted in. It is good for God to seek his glory first. And it is good for God to want us to seek his glory first because that is what is best for us. That is what makes us happiest. So how does this shape our prayers? Put simply, every request that follows from this first request serves this request of God's name being hallowed. We pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done for his glory. We pray for our daily bread for his glory. We pray for forgiveness from sin and protection from sin for his glory. Which means we should stop and we should check ourselves and reflect upon the way that we pray and say, am I really praying that God would be glorified in this situation? Is that really what my highest and chief good is? 
When I pray for a job, am I praying for a job so I can trust God less? Or so I can enjoy this world more in a sinful way? If so, we're not praying for God's glory. Do you want that promotion chiefly for your own glory? When I pray that my boss would recognize me at work, is that so that you can glorify God in that being recognized or so that you can glorify yourself in being recognized? Do you ask forgiveness for your sins without grieving over what your sin says about God? But it's just, I don't want to go to hell. I just want a clean slate. Let's go. Please forgive me of my sins. Or are you praying for God to be glorified as the God who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love? Does the glory of God color every part of your prayer life so that regardless of what you're praying for, it's all serving God's name being hallowed in your life and in the lives of others? And this is why it's important not to rush into prayer with our requests. It's not wrong to pray, help me, God. It's not wrong to immediately go to a request all the time if your heart recognizes God for who he is when you cry out, help me. But often it's helpful to be able to stop and before we ever get to our needs, to stop and reflect and praise God for who he is in our prayers to worship him, to delight in him, to exult in him in our prayers. Reflect upon his mercy and grace. Think about his goodness, his love, his justice and faithfulness. When we tell God that he's glorious, we don't make him more glory, but we tune our hearts and our eyes to focus and to see God for who he truly is as glorious. It's right to start our, praise, our prayers with praises because of what it does to the posture of our hearts. We will hallow his name when we do that. Church, our priority in our prayers is our Father's glory, because that is also our chief delight. May we pray to this end as we delight in him. Let's go to God in prayer now. Lord, you are such a good God in that you make it so that our happiness is linked to what we were made for. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Lord, what a gift it is to live for that purpose, to be fulfilled in the glorifying of your name. And Lord, we do pray, would you hallow your name in our church? Would Redeemer Alain exist to be able to display your glory to the watching world so that others can see you for who you are? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.